Welcome to Patterns of Care. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. After years of performing studies to define practice patterns in breast, lung, colorectal, and prostate cancer, we now have our first foray into hematologic oncology, specifically the management of multiple myeloma. The result of our web-based survey of 25 clinical investigators focusing on myeloma, 100 community-based medical oncologists, and 50 hematology oncology fellows is detailed in the enclosed monograph. On this program, we discuss the results with investigators Drs. Paul Richardson, David Vassol, Sagar Loniel, and practicing physician Dr. Charles Farber. The study demonstrated significant heterogeneity in management approaches and several interesting specific findings where there were major differences between the responses of investigators and practicing oncologists. To begin, I review with Dr. Richardson the clinical research database connected to the many challenging treatment decisions in myeloma and particularly new data sets from the last couple of years with direct and important clinical implications. I think the most important series of studies that have come through in the last two years in the transplant population are primarily European. The French data from Jean-Luc Carousseau that was updated at the American Society of Hematology meeting in San Francisco to show progression-free survival benefit to bortezomib-based therapy as part of induction compared to VAD in, I think, what will be considered a landmark trial. This trial actually had several important endpoints, Neil. It wasn't just simply a comparison between bortezomib-based therapy and VAD. It also explored the role of DCEP, combination chemotherapy, as a consolidative move prior to transplant. And the messages that came from Jean-Luc's presentation at ASH were fairly clear, I think. Bortezomib-based therapy outperformed VAD pre-transplant in depth and quality of response. What was very interesting is that benefit continued post-transplant. The quality of response post-transplant was significantly higher for the bortezomib-based therapy and most importantly reduced the need for second transplant and or a further randomization to reduced intensity allo if they had a matched sibling donor. So that was a very interesting observation from the trial. To me also what was particularly noteworthy was that DCEP chemotherapy added to either arm actually added nothing. And I think that that's a very important message because it's showing that whilst obviously we believe that combinations matter in myeloma and that sequences of treatment are important, it doesn't necessarily mean that more is more. It is clear to me that less may be more. And it's important that that distinction, I think this prospective randomized phase three trial makes clear. So I think in the French trial, evidence of response advantage to the bortezomib-based arm, and then very importantly, that correlated with progression-free survival benefit. And that usually, as you know, translates into survival advantage. So all of that information coming through from the French. The next trial that supported exactly the same observation, i.e. that depth and quality of response correlated with progression-free survival benefit, was from the Italians, led by Michele Carvo, who showed that the three-drug combination of a proteasome inhibitor, bortezomib in this case, thalidomide and dexamethasone, so-called VTD, compared to the doublet of thalidomide and dexamethasone, was better. And I think that that was obviously not surprising. It would be intuitive that that would be the case. But I think what was particularly interesting was the following, that not only did the three drugs do better in terms of induction advantage, but the benefit of the three-drug regimen was seen after transplant in terms of continued 
response. And very importantly in this trial, the three drugs were used as a consolidation step, as was also the doublet for the two-drug arm. And again, the same observation that had been seen in the French trial, the depth and quality of response post-transplant for the bortezomib-containing arm continued to improve. And what was particularly interesting and I thought informative was Michelli's analysis of risk because what he looked at were patients with adverse features as characterized by poor cytogenetics or what we call poor risk cytogenetics, 414 translocation, 13 deletion and so forth. And what Michelli showed was that the three-drug regimen was superior in this regard to the two-drug regimen where in fact thalidomide and dexamethasone wasn't able to overdrive the adverse impact of these poor risk cytogenetics. That's, I think, a very important take-home message. I think the other piece of it was that in some correlative science that was run with these trials, the depth and quality of response for the three-drug regimen was so profound that there were a higher rate of what we call stringent CRs, which are PCR negative, in fact, in this particular study, although stringent CR requires a slightly different assessment according to the uniform criteria by flow cytometry. Nonetheless, this PCR negative disease state was at a higher proportion in the three-drug versus the two-drug regimen. So I think that was all important data. And then, of course, what Michelli did, which was the key update, was that the depth and quality of these responses translated into a progression-free survival advantage for patients on the three drugs. So that was the next big randomized trial presented at the meeting. And the third one was then a comparison of bortezomib-based therapy utilizing bortezomib with adriamycin and dexamethasone, the so-called PAD regimen, to VAD. PAD is an interesting acronym, Neil. It arose because originally actually developed by the group at BARTS led by Jamie Kavanagh. And basically what Jamie had done was use the acronym PAD because in Britain, even the British National Health Service, using the acronym BAD would not exactly be a selling point to patients. (laughs) So in any event, PS341, adriamycin and dexamethasone, PAD was the acronym that Jamie utilized. And from the promising results from the Bart's London trial, basically Pieter Sonnefeld's group in the Dutch Hovum group and in fact also Hartmut Goldschmidt in the German intergroup pulled this together in a trial of PAD versus VAD. And what was really interesting in this trial was that they then looked at a comparison of maintenance strategies and they looked at thalidomide for the VAD arm versus bortezomib maintenance for the PAD arm. And that, I think, was really interesting because this is the first time in such a large-scale study that bortezomib maintenance has been compared to an IMID. And no surprises for the induction, PAD trounced VAD both pre- and post-transplant. What was particularly interesting to me, Neil, was to see actually that bortezomib-based maintenance continued to improve response over time, which I thought was intriguing. Now, very importantly, thalidomide did the same on the VAD arm. It improved the response in that arm as well. So it wasn't that bortezomib was, quote-unquote, better than thalidomide. That wasn't actually the observation. The observation was that both bortezomib and thalidomide maintenance improved the quality of response on both arms. The difference, though, was far greater for the bortezomib-based arm because they were already starting from a better point, if you will, because, of course, they had a higher depth and quality of responses to that arm compared to the fat arm. Anyway, the kind of message I took home from that was that maintenance in myeloma is really emerging as an important strategy and that image-based maintenance we think is very important. We'll have, I think, top-line data coming at this coming year's ASH from the French to show, I hope, 
benefit from Lend Lidlwine. We'll see. But I'm optimistic in that regard. I think it will be very encouraging data, I hope. And that data will be then, I think, augmented over time as we see that bortezomib maintenance may also have an important role. Now, of course, all of this is relatively speculative, and we'll be doing randomized trials and so forth to nail down the respective roles. But my take for transplant patients, Neil, at the high level was that these randomized phase three trials, highest level of evidence, are clearly showing that novel therapies are making a difference, that VAD, frankly, probably has no role in induction therapy pre-transplant, that consolidation chemotherapy utilizing agents like DCEP or combinations like DCEP, certainly in the French trial, conveyed no benefit. And very, very importantly, maintenance appears to matter. And in this regard, IMIDs and in particular lenalidomide and thalidomide, of course, are very promising, particularly I think lenalidomide for the future because I think, in my view, better tolerated. And I think then there was some provocative data to suggest that bortezomib may also have a role in maintenance, which obviously we'll have to explore in future trials. Of course, the other regimen that a lot of people are talking about, and particularly investigators are actually utilizing a lot, is RVD, the regimen you've reported. Can you talk about that? Thank you, yes. I think that the second sort of fest, if you will, of data from myeloma at the meeting was a series of upfront induction regimens presented as part of phase one, two, or phase two studies. And I think that we're particularly pleased with the performance of the lenalidomide bortezomib dexamethasone combination. This combination is informed by preclinical studies, which had shown that you were able to overdrive resistance to either drug through the combination. And we believe that the mechanism that underpins that is dual apoptotic signaling. Very elegant work by my colleague, Dr. Constantine Mitsiades, and my other laboratory colleague, Teru Hidashima, had shown that very nicely preclinically. When we then tested that in the relapsed refractory setting, we were very pleased to see responses from the combination, even in patients in whom either drug class alone had failed them. And we were able to define a dose and schedule that was well tolerated. But we thought it was very important in the upfront population to do a phase one for the simple reason that in relapsed refractory disease, patients have obviously been heavily treated with other drugs and most importantly by transplant. Perhaps not surprisingly, our major dose-limiting toxicity in the relapse setting was myelosuppression. And so in that context, we really wanted to see if we could define a dose and schedule up front, and we were successful in doing that. Basically, lenalidomide given at 25 milligrams daily for 14 days with a seven-day break, and bortezomib at full dose, 1.3 milligrams per meter squared, days 1, 4, 8, and 11. This was the defined backbone, if you will, to the upfront regimen of RVD. Interestingly, we started with dexamethasone at 40 on the days of bortezomib and the day after, but found that this was toxic and that in keeping exactly with the ECOG experience, that dose-limiting toxicity could be seen from this and therefore modified the protocol and found that actually 20 milligrams of dexamethasone on the day of bortezomib and the day after was optimal in our experience. And then I think, Neil, what was particularly interesting and exciting for us anyway was that the response rate from this three-drug combination, particularly in the context of its favorable tolerability, was remarkable. We had a PR or better in 65 valuable patients of 100%. Our CR near CR rate was 44%, and our VGPR or better was 74%. So those are the sorts of results in a multicenter phase two of a reasonable size that we think were very exciting. And it was particularly nice to have those results corroborated 
by the group from Mayo who were leading the evolution trial, in fact, in which we're participating as well, in which Shaji Kumar showed very nicely that the combination of RVD plus cyclophosphamide also was able in the phase one portion of that trial to engender a response rate of 100% PR or better in evaluable patients and very similar qualities of response, i.e. CR of around 35% or so, VGPR of around 68%. So this is the kind of quality of depth and response that we are you know, really excited to see. I think what will start to distinguish these regimens is actually tolerability because what we've also saw at the meeting, which was so interesting and, and actually very well presented by both Vincent Rajkumar from the ECOG trial and indeed Jean-Luc Harrisseau from the French trial, was that both investigators showed that if you were on treatment for longer, you did better, particularly true in the ECOG trial. And actually, I apologize, Neil, I misspoke. That it wasn't actually presented by Jean-Luc so much. It was presented by Jesus San Miguel, results from the VISTA study, which showed that the longer you were on treatment, the better you did. And so I think that what will start to distinguish some of these regimens is actually not just the efficacy signal in terms of activity, but the aggregate of activity and tolerability and will start to distinguish which regimens uh, suit folks the best. There were some very interesting efforts to try and build sequences of drugs. A nice study led by Bill Benzinger showing basically where he tried to integrate thalidomide and cyclophosphamide in various different sequences. Now, interestingly, in that study, whilst the response rates were very comparable, the toxicology signal was different and it was more pronounced. In fact, around transplant, there were three peritransplant-related deaths reported. There were also some infections seen during the induction phase. So I think, again, points to the fact that whilst these combinations have promise, one has to look hard at the tolerability profile to get a best understanding of what may be efficacious. I think another important point to share, though, in both the RVD combination and indeed in other data presented at the meeting, that risk profile may matter in terms of cytogenetics. And what was really interesting, we did an analysis of risk profile by ISS, the International Staging System Criteria, and by the presence or absence of adverse cytogenetics. We particularly chose 414 translocation and 13 deletion. And what we saw was that RVD was able to engender a similar response rate in all these groups. So there was no major difference according to risk. And a number of the other studies showed the same. But we have to be careful here because what really distinguishes regimens in terms of risk is not just response rate, it's the durability of disease control. And we'll see how those translate. But I think what was exciting at the meeting was to see combinations that are now active, relatively well tolerated, and in particular for RVD in my view, well tolerated, but at the same time able to overcome at least we think, based upon preliminary response rate analysis, the impact of bad risk. And I think that for patients is good news. So given all these new data sets, what do you consider reasonable non-protocol options right now? Well, I think that bortezomib-based therapy for candidates for stem cell transplant, I think we've got top-line phase three data to support that recommendation. I particularly would reference providers to the NCCN guidelines updated this last year and the chairman's obviously my chief and colleague and mentor, Dr. Ken Anderson. And Ken and the team at NCCN have done, I think, a very, very good job of bringing together the information that guides us in terms of practice off protocol. And in Ken's recommendations, there is clearly, based upon the quality of these response rates and tolerability profiles from various phase two studies, a recommendation that 
for example, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone is a reasonable choice in a patient in the upfront setting who may be a candidate for transplant and in whom a treating physician is concerned regarding potential risk features. However, I think it's important to note that in an older patient, for example, in whom you know a three-drug regimen may be somewhat challenging, it's perfectly appropriate, I think, based upon the quality, again, of the ECOG data, to consider, for example, lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone. Clearly, in those patients, low-dose dexamethasone is key. In any of the patients receiving lenalidomide up front, it would be clear from the ECOG study. But I think in also in a patient in whom an IV approach may be challenging, you know, the use of the two drugs may be adequate and appropriate. Again, though, the message from Vincent's trial was don't give them short treatment, treat them a gender optimal response, then perhaps back off on your steroid, particularly if side effects are an issue, and continue your lenalidomide. That was a clear message from Vincent's presentation. And I think in terms of the pre-transplant population, I think it's also important to recognize what Vincent presented, which was that in the ECOG trial anyway, they did not see a significant problem with stem cell mobilization once patients had been optimally mobilized. And I think that's an important message as well, that being concerned about the lenalidomide-based approach pre-transplant is valid, but recognizing it's not one that's a brick wall. It's something that's overcomable with appropriate strategies to mobilization. And Neil, that really focused around the use of cyclophosphamide to mobilize stem cells, the emerging role of novel agents in stem cell mobilization like Plerixifor, Mosabil, the use of GCSF, and so forth. So I think some of the concerns that have been higher level at previous meetings were less so when you looked at actual aggregate data sets from the ECOG trial. And I think so in the pre-transplant population or younger population, a bortezomib-based approach with an IMID seems to make sense. The use of lenalidomide-based therapy in combination with bortezomib we think is particularly promising. And I think in the older population, and especially in patients at arguably, quote-unquote, standard risk or lower risk, well, I don't like that term in myeloma because it's not a curable disease, so one has to be very careful how you use it. But nonetheless, in patients without such adverse features, and in particular in those in whom an IV approach may be challenging for various reasons, oral regimens could be reasonably considered. Getting back to the transplant candidate without adverse features, what other regimens do you think are reasonable? Well, I think that in terms of transplant candidates, again, the quality of induction response and the use of bortezomib as part of that induction response does seem very supportable based upon the phase three trials. So that I think is clear. I think where it becomes very much more complicated, frankly, is in the non-transplant population. And I think there we've obviously got a standard of care, which is thalidomide-based therapy established in randomized trials. Of course, we have thalidomide dexamethasone from a few years ago. But I think what's really interesting is now where do well-tolerated doublets like lenalidomide dexamethasone fit into that paradigm? And I think when one thinks of the impact of MPT, which is clear-cut from the trials from Italy and the trials from France, I think MPT remains a standard option for the older patient. Having said that, I think lenalidomide dexamethasone shows promise, and indeed there's a randomized trial currently ongoing both in the North America and Europe comparing MPT with lenalidomide and dexamethasone in two arms, one that's prolonged and one that's relatively short and defined. And I think that study is going to be very important in guiding us between choices in terms of MPT versus our little d as it's called.
I think, of course, already we have the results of the VISTA trial published in the New England Journal last year. And of course, the data that provided the foundation for the approval of bortezomib up front. And that trial was obviously particularly important being part of it. It was a privilege to being part of the study team that did that study. And frankly, you know, the data from it were really compelling. The combination of MP plus bortezomib driving a depth and quality of response in an older population who were not transplant eligible, usually only the domain of transplant eligible patients. And what I mean by that is a CR rate of 30% by rigorous criteria, an overall response rate that was very compelling, and a clear survival and progression-free survival advantage in favor of the three drugs, bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone versus M&P, the old standard. So I think in the context of non-transplant candidate patients, you have MPT on the one hand, the possibility in the emerging role of R little d, and of course MPV as your other option. And in the context of MPV, an important message is able to overdrive adverse cytogenetics, able to work in the context of renal dysfunction and other bad risk features, an encouraging combination that's also available. You mentioned the issue of dose of dexamethasone. In which situation do you think it's reasonable to use high-dose dex? I think in the context of high-dose dex, it has, in my view, a relatively limited role now. I think the reason I say that is because in a short exposure to high-dose dexamethasone, in my experience, that's reasonable for some patients, particularly younger patients, and in particular in combination with drugs like bortezomib. I think, unfortunately, in combination with the IMIDs, and in particular with lenalidomide, the data are very, very clear that high-dose dexamethasone and lenalidomide is simply not indicated because of the toxicology difference seen between it and low-dose dexamethasone. I think that in the context of thalidomide and high-dose dexamethasone, the toxicology appears less pronounced, and there may be lots of reasons for that. I wonder if one of them is actually that lenalidomide and dexamethasone, in my view, is clearly synergistic in terms of its anti-tumor effect, and part of its toxicology may be similar. Thalidomide and higher doses of dexamethasone, clearly the FDA-approved combination, is reasonable to consider. But certainly in our own practice, we have tended to use less. We believe that less dexamethasone is more. And you only have to talk to patients, and most importantly, not just the patients, but to their partners, to get a very clear signal that dexamethasone is a truly double-edged sword. So our own practice pattern is to use less dex versus more and to use our other drugs in combination. So, for example, you might say, well, I've got a bad risk patient. I really need to get the cytoreduction done fast. I really need to reduce that paraprotein promptly. Well, fine. Then you use your steroid, your imid, and your proteasome inhibitor, but you don't have to use high-dose dexamethasone. You can reasonably use your imid and your proteasome inhibitor platform to drive the depth and quality of response that you need. One issue we saw in a really interesting split in how people view is the question of whether or not, in fact, transplant needs to be done or it can be delayed based on the response. What are your thoughts about that? It's a moving target. I think where we stood some years ago was with the vision that perhaps novel therapies would replace transplant. And I think what we've seen is a different thing. We've seen that novel therapies have actually helped transplant work better. And I think that's a key message because what it tells us is that it's not that transplant's going away, it's that transplant remains part of our armamentarium, but we have the opportunity to use it perhaps in less of a sort of cookie-cutter fashion and more in a fashion where we can choose the time and point at which we deploy it to optimally help a patient enjoy progression-free time and quality time, which is an important consideration, of course. And I think the backdrop to that is to recognize that 
at the present time, this disease is not curable. If it's not curable, then it's very important for us to maximize depth and quality of response, we think, to improve duration of disease control. But at the same time, it also allows us to think creatively, I think, in where we place our modalities of therapy. So, for example, patients who may wish to delay the transplant option We've clearly shown that the collection of stem cells and their storage with transplant later is feasible. The interesting question, Neil, is, is there any clinical benefit to one versus the other? And that's the open question because the original trial by Jean-Paul Formand and the MAG group from France that showed that you could reasonably delay transplant and not lose a survival advantage did, however, show that early transplant was associated with a progression-free survival benefit and, very importantly, a quality-of-life benefit. With the advent of novel therapies, of course, the playing fields changed because in the delayed transplant population from the Formand study, they were receiving conventional chemotherapy. That's no longer the case in aggregate. Most patients are receiving either an imid or a proteasome inhibitor, or a combination of the two, or something of that sort. And these kind of novel therapy approaches may, we think, be better tolerated. So the open question is, what do you do? So to that end, we're actually doing a series of randomized trials across the country and in Europe. Our particular focus at Dana-Farber is in partnership, actually, with the French, exploring the combination of RVD up front, followed by stem cell mobilization, and then further RVD and then lenalidomide maintenance, or exactly the same, RVD up front, stem cell mobilization, transplant, and then RVD followed by maintenance, with the goal of really answering this question, Neil, where does transplant belong? And my expectation is that actually transplant will benefit early a subset of patients. That's, I think, where we'll lead, but there will be subsets in whom it is not needed, i.e. that there will be groups of patients in whom that will not be seen. But of course, that's just my speculation. We will have to see, and hence the need for the randomized trial. In general, about how long is transplant delayable? Great question. And I think in terms of stem cell longevity, it's up to 10 years. I think we would be very lucky as a myeloma patient to see that kind of disease control. On average, I would say in my experience, I've had patients in whom induction has been successful, they've achieved a high quality of response, and then a maintenance strategy has been reasonable and we've collected stem cells, and they've been progression-free for about two or three years, and then the disease has come back. Velcade salvage or bortezomib-based salvage has then been initiated, and then they've gone on to transplant. And I've seen this now in a few cases where it's been certainly feasible and certainly been associated with without engraftment issues and without toxicology that would make this prohibitive. And that's my own clinical experience, which I think mirrors the published data. But again, I'd reiterate the point for a randomized trial, because at the end of the day, that's the only way we're going to know. And big one is what we're going to need, because there are going to be subsets of patients, in my view, who benefit from the delayed transplant versus the early and vice versa. And I think the only way we're going to be able to answer that is in the context of a large prospective randomized phase three clinical trial. Until we have those types of data, how do you yourself approach this question outside a protocol situation? Well, it's a great question. It's not easy, actually. I personally recommend to patients that we start with an optimal induction regimen. We seek to achieve optimal response. And if they rapidly achieve a CR and really do not want to proceed to intensification and would prefer to wait and to use a strategy to maintain them in the meantime, I think that's a very reasonable approach. 
as long as the patient's fully informed and understands the risks both ways. Conversely, if you have a patient in whom cytoreduction during induction is challenging, that you finally get to a high-quality response, but it's difficult, and it's clear that maintaining them in some way outside of a transplant is not going to be easy, then I think recommending moving earlier to transplant versus late is reasonable. The other point is in these patients, of course, is to offer the opportunity to collect enough cells for a second transplant later because it's clear now with these longer remissions that we're achieving that there's a stronger rationale to a second delayed transplant potentially in patients where a decent interval is enjoyed from the first transplant. Our own programmatic guideline is if our patients enjoy a three-year or more progression-free interval from their first transplant, consideration of a second transplant using stored cells ideally is considered. If it's less than three years, Neil, the benefit of the second transplant may be substantially diminished because on average you get about a year and a half progression-free interval from the second transplant versus the first. So it's half of what you got the first time is my point. So if you only got, say, two years from your first transplant, the second one will at best get you one year. And most of us clinically feel that's perhaps not the best platform, although this construct of what is an adequate progression-free interval to justify therapy is obviously one for debate. What about the specific strategy of the type of transplant? What are some of the options that you see being utilized that you consider reasonable outside a protocol setting? Well, I think autologous transplant remains a gold standard. I don't think there's too much debate about that. I think, obviously, the use of allogeneic stem cell donors is a very different question. Clearly, that remains the purview of a clinical trial, in my view, because the treatment-related mortality associated with its use in the fully ablative setting is prohibitive. The use, although, again, under certain controlled clinical trial circumstances, there may be, there I know, certain studies that are going forward trying to minimize toxicity and in particularly high-risk individuals explore the role of fully ablative chemotherapy with allogeneic transplant. The biggest problem, of course, was in the past, graft-versus-host disease, veno-occlusive disease, these kinds of complications were so high. The good news is with better GVHD prophylaxis, with better strategies for treating veno-occlusive disease and so forth, um, it may be possible to revisit this modality in full. And I know, for example, the group in Seattle are interested in this approach. However, the broader direction of allogeneic transplant is going in the field of what we call reduced-intensity allos or non-myeloablative allogeneic transplant. And there, under protocol-directed conditions, we, for example, are actively pursuing that. And I think there's been some actual very interesting data recently. First and foremost, there was the French trial, which showed no benefit to auto followed by mini-allo in a randomized prospective setting. Having said that, they used very aggressive graft-versus-host disease, rather they used aggressive immune suppression with ATG, and arguably that may have explained some of the blunting of the effect because they had low rates of GVHD, but they had very high rates of relapse. Then the Italian group, led by Dr. Bruno from Turin, published in the New England Journal the results of their study in which they randomized patients to either autologous grafting or biologically to auto-followed by mini-allo if they had a sibling donor. And they showed very nicely in that study, actually, with so-called standard risk patients, all risk patients going into it. That's another important point about the French trial. The French trial only enrolled high-risk patients with adverse cytogenetics. 
the simple point was that the Bruno trial was positive in favor of auto followed by mini allo, showing a survival advantage to the mini allo following auto effect. There were some limitations to that trial, though. Most importantly was the poor performance of the auto arm, which performed less well than practically any other auto arm reported in the large phase three setting. And the other piece of it was that the randomization was exactly equal between both arms, which was unusual. It would have been unexpected. And so that might point to some design issues that may be unforeseen. But in any event, the Bruno trial positive, the French trial negative. So where do we now sit? Well, very interestingly, the EBMT trial led by Gustagarten and Bork Borgstand from Sweden was recently presented at the International Myeloma Workshop in updated form. And what it suggested was initially no difference, but with longer follow-up, an arm is opening to show a difference in favor of the aloe arm. So I think that aloe needs to be borne in mind clearly and needs to be further explored. And I think with the advent of novel therapies and particularly with better supportive care and better strategies for graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis, I personally am enthusiastic about allogeneic transplant done differently and on protocol and in an innovative fashion, recognizing, of course, that the subgroup of patients served by an allogeneic approach is quite small, typically match sibling donors, although there is some now experimental work being done with unrelated donors. But I do think that there may be some merit in the approach, but again, only in the context of carefully controlled clinical trials. What about tandem transplant? Well, I think, Neil, there the news is less positive in my view. And the reason I say that is because I think the evidence in aggregate is suggesting that tandem transplantation, particularly with the advent of novel therapies and especially bortezomib-based treatment, is not conveying that much benefit. And given the real issue of increased toxicity and importantly increased myelosuppression subsequent to the second transplant, a lot of centers now are no longer doing this. We ourselves only ever did it on protocol and we have no current active studies in that regard. We do, as I mentioned, collect and we'll do a second transplant in selected patients later. But tandem transplantation is not something that we're routinely performing. What about the age at which a patient is eligible for transplant? We saw a little bit of disparity in our survey that the investigators seem to be a little bit more open to older patients, maybe even up to 75. What's your view on that? Well, it's a good question, Neil. I think that we have a couple of caveats there. At our own center, our upper limit is 70. Of course, in Europe, it's 65. And I think the Facon study, which showed the actual significant survival advantage of MPT over MP and also autologous transplant in patients over the age of 65 is compelling. But I do think that with novel therapies, transplant is improving. And there was some nice data by Antonio Palombo, again presented at this year's ASH, showing that perhaps revisiting intensive therapy with novel therapies in the older population is something to be considered. However, I'm cautioned by one study we did where we showed that patients in whom transplant had been performed or intensive chemo, they were less able to tolerate novel therapies at time of relapse after transplant. And I think that in the older population, I'm concerned that, you know, we have to be very careful how we use the modality because if it was neutral, i.e. it could only help you and it wouldn't hurt you, that would be fine. But I think anyone who's clinically busy and in the field knows that transplanting patients over the age of 70 is not easy. And so I personally approach caution in the older age group. 
What about the issue of post-transplant maintenance? What are the strategies that you consider reasonable options outside a protocol setting? Well, I think that's a great question, Neil. And I think that we've got in our own center, we're participating in the CLGB trial, which is a randomization between placebo and lenalidomide. And of course, when patients progress, they're unblinded. And if they're on placebo, they get obviously access to lenalidomide. Our experience with that trial has obviously it's double blinded. So it's impossible to say in terms of efficacy at this stage. It's accruing very well. We're one of the leading rollers at Dana-Farber. And I've personally been impressed that Toxicology, irrespective, has been relatively manageable. Again, not knowing because it's double-blinded and placebo-controlled. But in any event, the participation in clinical trials for maintenance, I think, is essential because that's the way we're really going to understand the answer. For off-protocol, we are impressed by thalidomide. We do think that low-dose thalidomide without steroid can be well-tolerated and is a reasonable thing to do. We think that the only caution with thalidomide has to be the neurotoxicity because it can be cumulative. And patients typically get six months or so. It's only a minority of patients, in my experience, who are able to stay on thalidomide for many years. But there are some, it's fair to say. I think our favorite room is lenalidomide. And off protocol, we have used it, I have to say, because it's not neurotoxic. In selected patients, we've tended to reserve it for patients in whom the suboptimal response to first transplant has been achieved. Typically, their whole transplant group that we would consider lenalidomide-based maintenance or thalidomide-based maintenance would be in patients who achieve less than a VGPR. If patients achieve a CR, that's a more challenging group because at the end of the day, the data from the French studies do not suggest benefit to thalidomide in that group. Having said that, there are patients who will say, look, you know, I understand that but I tolerated it fine. I would like everything done. I'd like all my eggs lined up if at all possible. And in that context, it's not an unreasonable thing to consider. But generally speaking, some form of maintenance does appear to matter. In that same vein, we will use bisphosphonate therapy for patients with advanced bone disease for a period of time. I was actually going to ask you about bisphosphonates. Again, what are the strategies that you think are reasonable to utilize, including duration and selection of an agent? Well, I think pomidronate is the best tolerated in terms of renal toxicity and so forth. Zolendronic acid is clearly very potent. And I think if a patient is tolerating zolendronic acid and has bone disease and doesn't have any contraindications to its use, we would continue its use post-transplant. We do have a number of clinical trials, the so-called ZMARC trial, in which we're enrolling to, as well as our own investigator-initiated study led by my colleague Nuparaje from Mass General. But essentially, the bisphosphonate use that we consider off-protocol is pretty much driven by the status of bone disease in the patient. The patient's in remission. Post-transplant, typically, we would consider up to two years of therapy, differing schedules. Obviously, the monthly schedule we would be prone to use in someone with bone disease, and especially if they're not in remission. Less frequent administration we would consider in someone who's in complete remission with relatively modest or minimal bony involvement. Then beyond two years, the current guidelines suggest that one can reasonably take a break from bisphosphonate therapy. We would do that in a patient without bone disease in complete remission. I think that in a patient in whom bone disease is present, one just has to be very careful. Again, particularly if they're tolerating treatment well, there are no side effect issues such as renal dysfunction or osteonecrosis of the jaw. I do think one has to bear in mind that bone disease in this illness is a scourge 
And, you know, the old saying, one doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater is something that I always think of when one considers this. Nonetheless, I think the ZMARC trial will be very important in helping us understand whether three monthly is as good as monthly. And some of us off protocol are using markers of bone turnover to guide therapeutic choice. Not always an easy thing to do. That is being done as part of the ZMARC study. I think that those are the kind of directions we'll go in to guide us as to how to most intelligently use bisphosphonate. What about the issue of anticoagulation and the patient receiving an IMID? I think it's required. I think that antithrombotic therapy on IMID, particularly in combination, is essential. I think IMID alone, a lot of experience with lenalidomide as monotherapy, it's very well tolerated and it's an excellent agent in my experience. Basically, there we would always use a minimum aspirin. Thalidomide, the same. However, in patients in whom risk of thrombosis is real, be it from prior history or family history or other concomitant factors, the use of more aggressive anticoagulation, including low molecular weight heparin, is, I think, an important consideration. It is interesting, though, that data from Europe suggests that aspirin is the gold standard. Again, work done by Antonio Palombo from Italy, showing in a series of quite well-done studies, given actually the complexity of the question, showing that aspirin was essentially as good as full-dose cuminonization and perhaps also prophylactic low molecular weight heparin has been suggested. The International Myeloma Working Group has quite a nice guideline published in the Leukemia Journal last year, which I think can guide providers. But I do think some form of anticoagulation or antithrombotic prophylaxis is essential. Interestingly, if you combine IMID with bortezomib, there is clear evidence now from randomized trials that the thrombotic risk is reduced. So I think there's actually a nice synergy there in terms of toxicology where bortezomib can protect against thrombosis to some extent. Don't misinterpret it, not fully. So you still have to have your anticoagulant or your aspirin on board. But at the same time, IMID plus proteasome inhibitor seems to be associated with less thrombogenic risk than otherwise. Interestingly, in our experience too, particularly with the RVD regimen, we do think there may also be some neuroprotective effect from the IMID on bortezomib, but that's an interesting and exciting new area, but we do think it may be real. Any speculations about mechanisms for both of those things, the reduced neurotoxicity and reduced thrombotic risk? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Neil. Let's start with probably the easier one, which is the thrombotic risk. There is emerging data to suggest that the effects on platelet aggregation from bortezomib may be real, that the effects on the release of soluble thrombomodulin by, which is an NF-kappa B-dependent process, can be modulated by bortezomib and so lead to a less thrombogenic stimulus at the level of the endothelium as well as also in the area of platelet activation. So I think there are a couple of lines of preclinical evidence to support it. What's clear clinically is that it's real because it's in the setting of, interesting, of the Italian trial. Bortezomib, thalidomide dex versus thalidomide dex, there is a significantly lower clot risk to the three drugs with the same anticoagulant regimen in both versus the two drugs. So I think the clot mechanism is perhaps interesting and fairly clear. The neurotoxicity one is far less clear. What we do know is that proteasome inhibitors as a drug class broadly have effects on the dorsal root ganglion and can have, through proteasome inhibition at the level of the DRG, can influence protein processing for the axon and these long fibers that obviously extend to the extremity. And that, perhaps, it's not surprising that you see the classical small fiber axonal neuropathy emerging in the context of disruption for these long-track fibers that have to feed that process. 
What's clear in myeloma is that neurotoxicity is part of the illness, and it's driven probably by an inflammatory cytokine effect, which has become better understood. Now, obviously, steroids will blunt that to some extent, but I think it's important to recognize that the IMIDs as a class are potent inhibitors of IL-6 and potent inhibitors of TNF-alpha, as an example. And it may well be that the anti-inflammatory effects of the IMID in concert with the proteasome inhibitor act to reduce that component of neurotoxicity that's driven by inflammation as a hypothesis. And that's why the imid proteasome combinations are less neurotoxic than you might expect. The cardinal example, of course, is VTD. VTD does have neurotoxicity, it's clear, but the acuity of it is less than you might expect. And I think that that's a fascinating observation originally made actually by Maurizio Zangari from the Arkansas group when he was there before he moved to Utah. And I think that there lies the clue and our experience with the RVD regimen would suggest that may be very real. We do not see significant neurotoxicity with the combination, particularly with the use of dose reduction of bortezomib. And I think that's the other point to make, is if you've got combinations that work, you can afford to use lower doses of the bortezomib. And in that context, you're going to see less neurotoxicity. So I think the neurotoxicity question in a nutshell, Neil, is complicated. But I think we're seeing that certain combinations may be less neurotoxic than others. Now, there is one set of data from this survey that I actually want to show you or get your take on specifically. But before I do, I want to ask you about the issue of the workup of the patient with myeloma. Mm, right. And I know that the myeloma workshop came out with some guidelines related to that. Can you summarize what those guidelines are? And then I want you to actually comment on what we found. Sure. At the International Myeloma Workshop, the guidelines that were generated were to sort of help practitioners sort of make sense of the potential myriad of tests that may be required. But as a basic assessment, obviously the standards remain complete blood count, chemistry profile, serum protein electrophoresis, immune fixation, urine immune electrophoresis, free light testing. That may be less commonly appreciated, but that's a very useful tool in my experience and is reasonable to assess at diagnosis. Beta-2 microglobulin, I think, is essential because it helps us with staging, and it also helps, in my view, assess proliferative thrust. And serum albumin as part of that is important. More optional tests will include things like C-reactive protein, and, of course, when one's looking at the tumor within the marrow, we require hematomorphology biopsy to do that as well to assess the degree of cellular infiltration. Very importantly, cytogenetics, and cytogenetics including fish, we think are recommended. In terms of the imaging, skeletal survey remains a standard. A patient with low back pain must have an MRI, in my view, to properly evaluate them. And there is an emerging role of PET-CT. However, that is not approved at this point. And certainly from an insurance standpoint, that's no small consideration. And I find more often than not that I cannot get a PET-CT approved by an insurer as part of an evaluation especially if other strategies or other modalities can be deployed. Having said that, I think it is a useful tool if you can get it. And I think that imaging around skeletal survey MRI remains a standard. 
Then I think in terms of the more experimental testing, you know, flow cytometry, PCR, and so on, those remain essentially more investigative tools. I do think flow cytometry can be helpful if it's available, though, because it's nice to know whether your disease is expressing CD56 and so forth. Those can be useful, particularly for trials that are coming down the line in which we're looking at monoclonal antibodies that, for example, may target CD56. They may also we have other new drugs targeting CD138, CD38, and so forth. So those can be useful as well. In our surveys, when we do these types of surveys, we're always looking for situations where we see kind of a gap Mm. between maybe what's in guidelines and what investigators are doing, what's being done in docs and practice. And I'll also preface this by saying that it's our take, having done many, many of these surveys, that the way we do this is we actually send out a blast email. It's not actually we have a web research company that does this. So we actually send out an email. We send it out to, I think, almost 6,000 U.S.-based medical oncologists. It's, you know, a typical list based on ASCO, et cetera. And actually, in this survey, we think that we got docs who are a little bit more interested in myeloma than the average doc mm. in practice because the volume of myeloma mm. patients that they see in these 100 docs is actually greater than what I think is actually happening in a practice. Also... Normally, it takes these companies several weeks to recruit, for example, 100 physicians. We recruited this time in three days. Fantastic. There was a lot of interest in this. And again, we think it was because we got a lot more docs who were interested in hematologic oncology. Mm -hmm. So with that, by way of preface, and also the fact that this is really the first time we surveyed 50 fellows in oncology, I'd like you to maybe just go through the case that we presented I actually am struck by the fact that only 63% of the docs in practice would order fish and only 60% metaphase cytogenetics. Now, the fellows, it's actually higher, much more like with the investigators. But those two numbers kind of jumped out to me. You know, I do agree, Neil. I think that you've got metaphase cytogenetics, you're right, at 60%. And if you look at fish, you're absolutely right. Amongst the private oncologists, the cytogenetics piece is less useful, they think. Well, I think a couple of points. One, I think that I can understand how that may have arisen. I think the fellows are obviously on the cutting edge of learning and they're seeing all the new information about cytogenetics and fish. I think on the other hand, amongst the more seasoned oncologists, they've seen that cytogenetics has bounced around. The field has moved. Not so many years ago, if you had chromosome 13 deletion, that was the sword of Damocles. And, you know, we even had recommendations like if you had abnormal cytogenetics, you should not go to transplant. That has changed because we've recognized the impact of novel therapies. I personally think that cytogenetics and fish are essential, but I understand that discrepancy. I think they're essential now because I think they help us go forward and better understand where we are. I think the important message for providers is that they can help us as we think about new treatments and clinical trials. The good news with the novel therapies is whereas before adverse cytogenetics would carry a clear demarcation in terms of response with conventional therapy, Neil, that's not the case now. With bortezomib-based treatments, we're not seeing that same dichotomy. And with lenalidomide-based therapy, we're not seeing it either. So I think we have the opportunity to show that on the one hand, we need to do these tests. And on the other, 
It shouldn't, however, necessarily be seen as a profound negative for any patient because at the end of the day, we can do something about it. I wonder if that's feeding into some of the thinking behind cytogenetics from some of the private docs. You know, in the old days, well, if you had it and it was bad, that was great, but what would you do about it? Well, now it's a different story. I actually wondered whether or not this might be something that we could submit to ASH because I was kind of struck by it. I mean, it's a significant number of people. It's not like 10% or something. This is more than a third. I think it's a discussion point, Neil. I would personally agree with you. I think given that it needs to be done, there's an educational message. I suppose we can hypothesize as to why. And I think it's definitely food for discussion. But do you see what I mean about why they may be thinking that? Totally. No, I, I think it's very helpful to know what the logic might be because we weren't actually anticipating this. No, quite. Because kind of what you're seeing is that the fellows who are fresh and educated, yes, absolutely. The seasoned oncologists in the field, well, we know about it, but so what? And then the clinical investigator says, well, actually, yes, it does matter. So I think you're right. There is an opportunity there for a discussion and information, basically, and education. The last thing, I just want to get a couple of brief comments from you on. And we asked a number of questions about the management of relapse disease. And again, I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of sort of the constellation of reasonable non-protocol options in patients who have progressive disease. Well, I think in that note, Neil, I think a couple of important sort of practice points. I mean, one important practice point is to recognize that unlike epithelial neoplasms, where revisiting a class of drug in which a patient's already been exposed may be very unlikely to yield benefit. That paradigm doesn't apply in myeloma. You can revisit backbone agents, as I call them, or platform drugs like proteasome inhibitors and imids as a combination. And I think that the use of additional drugs to then meet the need makes sense. And the data to support that's best exemplified by, for example, Bob Olosky's work with liposomal doxorubicin and bortezomib, where he showed in his randomized trial that if you used liposomal doxorubicin and bortezomib with relapse within 12 months of a transplant, that had a superior outcome to bortezomib monotherapy. And then therein lies an important clue that if you've got a patient with aggressive relapse relatively soon after intensive therapy, think combinations and think about ideally drugs that they you know, bringing together agents that they may have seen before on the one hand, but otherwise adding to them drugs they haven't. For example, in the trial, that was illustrated, I think, very nicely. Importantly, if you look at phase one and two experiences, the same message is clear, that you can revisit combinations but be innovative. And I think in the relapsed refractory setting, the good news is that we have what I call these backbone agents, but we also have a constellation of new drugs coming. We, of course, have the second-generation proteasome inhibitors, we have yet another imid, pomalidomide, CC4047, which I think is showing great promise. We have what I call the epigenetic drugs, the HDAC inhibitors in particular. Best example is veronostat, panabinostat, or LBH is a very exciting newcomer. And there are, of course, other drugs under study, including romidepsin or depsipeptide, as it used to be called. So there are a number of exciting new opportunities coming through the pipeline. So I think clinical trials on the one hand in the relapse setting are important. There's one particularly exciting new avenue, which I do want to emphasize, and that is actually the HSP90 class. HSP90 is clearly an important target in myeloma. It's a pathway that's upregulated in stress. It's upregulated in myeloma anyway, but it's particularly upregulated in the context of bortezomib exposure. And there's a very exciting new HSP90 inhibitor that's now under phase three trial study, tenaspermycin, 
or I should say under study in a phase three trial, tenaspamycin with bortezomib, which is fascinating because not only is it being shown to, in the phase one, two experience, overcome resistance to bortezomib, but very interestingly, because it's associated with a reduction in neurotoxicity by the upregulation of HSP70, a neuroprotective effect, this seems to be real. And what we're thinking is that this may be explaining why from the phase one, two trial that we did, we see dramatic progression-free survival because patients are not only benefiting from the therapeutic index in terms of being able to overdrive resistance, but also seeing duration of disease control because of tolerability improvement. And I think that's really exciting. So that's an exciting opportunity. And then finally, there's the whole area of what I would consider other new novel agents, AKT inhibition with perifocine, We've been very involved in that and been very impressed with the combination of perifocine and bortezomib and dexamethasone. There are, for the first time, real excitement around IL-6 with the use of the IL-6 antibody CNTO38 in combination with Valcade. And again, I would just re-emphasize, I think, the excitement that surrounds the combination of the epigenetic drugs with bortezomib and indeed also, for that matter, with lenalidomide, where great promise is seen. Now, of course, all of that's on protocol, Neil. Off protocol, it's wise to think of, you know, revisiting alkylator in combination with imid and proteasome inhibitor. It's, I've already touched on the role of anthracyclins and so forth. And I think it's important to note that basically you can revisit combinations of drugs that have been seen before. And I think that's a critical message. I won't in any way diminish, however, the challenge of relapsed refractory disease. We're very excited because patients are living median survivals. And now, if we're fortunate, extending out to five to seven years. Having said that, relapsed refractory patients are still very sick and face great challenges. And I think that it's important to counsel patients accordingly because there's a great deal of optimism appropriately. But we also have to recognize that the disease remains very challenging and difficult, and particularly in the advanced setting.